Thank you, sir. Thanks, everybody, for coming back. There's still a few more seats in the front for those who need it. Um, unlike previous weeks, we have a lot of stuff to tell you today. So hold on. I know we've moved pretty slowly the last several weeks, but we're going we're gonna to change the pace here. Going to change the pace. So today we want to talk about some of the current realities. We're going to do that this week and next week. I'll be gone next week. Rob won't be here next week, so my dad will be covering uh, some issues re regarding um, health care and uh, identity issues, uh, status of Jerusalem, some things like that next week. So do stay tuned for next week. So if, as we talk about today, if you will hold in your vision and in your mind what Rob talked about last week and about what the prophets had to say about uh, the actions of, of the Hebrew people, the actions of Israel, what God was trying to say, as Rob was saying, through those prophets, and then hold that and say, what might then be said to this situation that we're going to talk about today, if anything. So, current realities. Where we left off when I last spoke to you uh, was about suicide bombing in the Second Intifada. You remember we, I put up these slides from bus bombings and uh, talked about this gentleman, Bruce Goldstein. We're not going to go back into that now, but it's just to say this is where we left off, talking about suicide bombings that significantly increase in 01, 02, and 03 uh, when the second intifada, the second major Palestinian uprising, begins. Uh, I mentioned this uh, book called Cutting the Fuse, which I do encourage you all to get if you're interested in this particular topic. Uh, that looked at all of the known suicide attacks, suicide bombing attacks, um, from 1980 until 2009. And they concluded that the principal cause of suicide terrorism is resistance to foreign occupation and not Islamic fundamentalism, which functions mainly as a recruiting tool. They said that foreign occupation accounted for nearly all, 95% of all known suicide attacks from 1980 to 2009. So then the question that I, want, what I was hoping to get to last time I didn't get to was just to say, what would be an example of why someone, what a foreign occupation looks like and why someone might resort to terrorism? So I thought I'd show you a couple of images. Hey, when you talk about suicide bombing, is that by the Islamic people or by the Palestinians primarily? So, well, in, in the case of Israel-Palestine, suicide bombing would happen by Palestinians. Um, most of whom would, yes, be Muslim, but, um, but the point of what this slide was saying, and I had more, uh, more on this last time, is that mo over half of the actual known affiliations of suicide bombers throughout history are actually not connected to Islam. And the, per the, the organization, the group that has conducted the most suicide attacks are not even Muslim. So it's to say it's not a, it's not a Muslim thing, suicide bombing. Now, in the case of Israel-Palestine, it's a Palestinian thing. But we're, the suggestion is that that's rooted in foreign occupation, not in a religious faith. Okay? These are images that I took. Uh, there's a story, one of the chapters in my book, um, it's called The Dis uh, Powers of Destruction, I believe. And it's about when I went and witnessed a home demolition uh, in the West Bank. So these were images that I took there. This was in February 2012. Uh, we'd gotten a call to say that a home demolition was happening um, just south of Hebron in the West Bank and that CPT was needed to go and be there. So when we arrived, the house demolition had already happened. The Israeli bulldozers were leaving. Uh, the Caterpillar bulldozers uh, were, um, were leaving the site. And this was the patriarch of the family who was crying out to God, asking why, why, why. Uh, the mother, matriarch of the family here, you can see is grieving. There were seven children in the family who all became homeless in the middle of winter uh, because of this house demolition. Now, when I posted this image online, somebody 
commented on my picture on Facebook to say, well, they clearly were hiding weapons from Hamas in their house. That's why Israel would have destroyed it. Israel only destroys houses where the weapons of Hamas are being held. Now, I can tell you that I walked through the rubble and there were no weapons there. However, what do you notice in this picture? Same place, same day, I took it. What do you see over here? A settlement. Yeah. That would be why the house was destroyed. This house was the only Palestinian home remaining where Israel was trying to expand their settlement of Carmel. Okay, Th These are some settlement houses in the works just beyond this. If I turn the camera, you'd see some much nicer houses with some lawns and some trees, and they're trying to expand down. And then Israel wanted to be able to expand out this way, and this was the only Palestinian house left. So they went in February in the middle of winter and bulldozed it. Okay. Since 1967, 27,000 Palestinian homes and structures have been destroyed. 27,000 have been destroyed. Now, as we're talking about terrorism, we tend to think of terrorism as the things that are happening like in Nice, or what happened in Munich, or what happened in Orlando, or what happened in you know, the suicide bombings. We think of that as terrorism, but let me just offer a couple other things. Art First of all, Article 53 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, that should say convention, not contention. <coughs> Although I sh they're contending something, I suppose. Any destruction by the occupying power of real or personal property belonging individually or collectively to private persons is prohibited. So first of all, what they're doing there is against international law. We'll just start there. Second, FBI definition of terrorism. Not my definition of terrorism, not Israel's, not Palestine's, the FBI's. The is the, terrorism is the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government the civilian population or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. That would be terrorism then. Bulldozing someone's house and making them homeless in the middle of winter, according to the FBI, would be terrorism. So it just kind of raises the question of how are we identifying terrorism? Why are we identifying it one place and not in another place? What makes for terrorism? And what should our response be to all methods of terrorism? We're not actually going to discuss that today because it's a very complicated topic and we have a lot more to discuss, but yeah. I want to tell a quick story I didn't yep. tell Michael I was going to tell, but it ties this together. In April, I was on a bus from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. There are several different bus systems in Israel. We were on a Palestinian bus going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. I had my six medical students with me. I got an alert on my phone saying that there had just been a bus bombing in Jerusalem. We didn't know anything about it, but we could turn and look out the window of our bus and see the smoke off in the distance. So we were about 15 minutes ahead on the same bus route, except that was an Israeli bus, we were on a Palestinian bus. So I told all the students, I said, get on your phones immediately. We had our little mobile Wi-Fi, so we had internet. I said, get on your phones, alert your families. They're all gonna be seeing this story back home. Tell them we're safe, everybody's okay. Um, and the story began to emerge over the next couple of days that it had in fact been a, a suicide bombing of a young man from the Ida refugee camp, which is one of the camps just inside Bethlehem who had gotten onto a bus and detonated a bomb, um, and he, he subsequently died from his injuries. No Israelis died in the attack, but the, the, the bomber, of course, died. So about two days later, we're sitting in the Ida refugee camp uh, in the office of a, of a friend of mine who runs a nonprofit uh, advocating nonviolent resistance, what he calls the beautiful resistance of art and culture as a means of resisting the occupation. He has an incredible story. Maybe we'll have time to tell you a little bit later on. But as we're talking to him, and he's telling his story to the students, as he nears the end, he said, here's an example of what we're trying to avoid. He said, I learned just yesterday that the young man who detonated the bomb on the bus in Jerusalem is my cousin. 
he said, we had no idea that he had become radicalized. Not radicalized with respect to his faith, it was a political um, change ideology that he had adopted. No one in the family knew, no one was aware, but he just made that confession to us and began to process that, what that was like for him and for his family. He has spent the last 15 years of his life developing this NGO, advocating nonviolent resistance, and then his own cousin uh, ends up becoming a suicide bomber. Um, and so what, what ties this back into the home demolitions is he said, we are now waiting. He said the military has already been into the camp. They've interrogated his parents, and we're waiting for them to come with the bulldozers because they're going to destroy his family home. His parents were unaware. His cousins were unaware. No one in the family was aware of what we, he was doing. But the punishment will be collective. So they will go into the refugee camp and demolish the home of his parents because of what this young man did. So it's the cycle of violence that just continues yep. to feed upon itself. That destruction of the home will be witnessed by hundreds of young Palestinian children in that refugee camp whose hatred will continue to increase as they watch people lose their homes. Mm -hmm. And then some of them will become radicalized and they will be violent. And in response, this will, will be violent again. And the cycle continues. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I, I won't elaborate on that, but I was just to say, you can imagine th this, I forgot to mention, this is the third time this, that family's home was destroyed. They've rebuilt three times in that area, and each time Israel's come and destroyed their house. So you imagine what it's like for this girl. I have no idea how old she is. What, probably younger than five, I would guess. I'm not good at identifying children's ages. But just to think what she has witnessed now in the early parts of her life, and that that so far is the only narrative she has of who an Israeli is, the people who come and make her homeless. It's not hard to imagine why someone then wants to go and attack. Okay, we're going to keep moving. So I just wanted to remind you about settlements. Uh, I know we, we, we mentioned this earlier, but just a brief recap. Those are the Israeli Jewish housing units that are built in land that was occupied during the 67 war. Um, I was once asked uh, uh, when I was over there about how come we don't talk about the Palestinian settlements. It's just because in this particular context, there, it's a misnomer. There's no such thing as a Palestinian settlement. Settlements exclusively refer to Israeli Jewish housing units built in land that was taken during the 67 war. Um, they actually, they, become, they start out as trailers. They become cities uh, like Ma'ale Adumim, which is just outside Jerusalem. Um, they, you start out as a forested hill and it becomes a city. This is right next to Bethlehem. This is uh, what in Arabic is known as Abu Ghanim. Uh, the Israelis call it Har Homa. But this is in the West Bank, just outside of, of um, Bethlehem. It was the only forested hilltop left in the area when Israel took it in 1997-2000 and cleared off all the forest and built a settlement there. It's visible when you take the road from Jerusalem to, to Bethlehem and around the Beit Sahur. You can see this on your left immediately. It's, it's constantly visible to the Palestinians who live there. I read just yesterday that a five-bedroom a, a five apartment in, in Harhoma sells for about $600,000 and advertised as having a beautiful view of Bethlehem. So one of the reasons, and a five-bedroom home in Jerusalem would cost far in excess of $600,000. So again, it's the economic reality of the subsidies that are given to these settlements. But this is Palestinian land, a forest that was confiscated stripped bare, and a settlement was built. Yeah. So again, according to the Geneva Conventions, this is illegal. You can't deport or transfer your population there. Israel, of course, contests that. 
Facts on the ground today, there are over 600,000 Israeli citizens, settlers living in over 120 government-sanctioned settlements. These do not include outposts, which is a whole other thing. But note here, 15% of settlers are U.S. citizens. Really interesting. Um, I've met U.S. citizens, who, U.S. Jews who have moved to, uh, for instance, Hebron, or are living in the settlements in Hebron, which we'll talk about later. Baruch Goldstein, the one we talked about, who went in. Uh, 1994, an open fire in the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron and killed 27 Palestinians worshiping. He was an American doctor from New York. Um, so 15% are U.S. citizens. Do you know out of that 15%, how many are Jewish and how many are evangelical? They're I, all Jewish. Because they can't, you can't become a citizen of Israel unless you're Jewish. Um, some of them uh, may be Messianic Jews, but most of these are radical Zionists. They're, they're yeah. either conservative uh, uh, Jewish Orthodox Jews or radical Zionists. Did I remember correctly though that you only have to be like one for Jewish blood yes. to be to come into Israel? Yeah, it's yeah, it's very complicated in terms of the, the laws with respect to to um, making Aliyah uh, and becoming a citizen, which is now one eighth um, uh, uh, Jewish, and who can be Jewish in terms of the courts for the purposes of marriage and full rights, and there are two different laws for that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting, this article in Newsweek um, cites a study out of Oxford University, and that's where the statistic comes from, of 60,000 American <coughs> citizens living in the West Bank as settlers. And they went on to, to show that there have been $200 million of tax-deductible, U.S. tax-deductible contributions to the settlement project, the vast majority of those coming through some 40 different organizations, many of which are evangelical uh, Christian organizations that are funneling money uh, with U.S. tax exemptions into the settlements. Yeah, a few of the soldiers that I met in Hebron uh, were actually American citizens who just immigrated and became citizens for the purpose of serving in the Israeli army. Yeah. Okay, you said that um, suicide bombings were not religiously motivated Yeah, that was the study done. Yeah, I mean, this study was done before ISIS. ISIS seems to be a, a different thing. Uh, and and I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards since it's not necessarily the subject here. I don't know that I want to, I'm not going to go into it a whole lot. ISIS clearly has some political issues, political agendas. There's clearly connection to U.S. policies over there. There's a lot of that stuff. But they also very much brand themselves as an Islamic state. So it raised some of those questions. But this, end, this study that I was talking about ended in 09. So for them, from 80 to 09, 95% were connected to foreign occupation. Um, Mike, it's a really important point that, that Islam is often used as a recruiting tool for suicide bombing, mm -hmm. uh, but there's nothing in the Muslim faith that condones or supports suicide bombing. It's a political move. Even with ISIS, it's a resistance to occupation. And I'm not in any way justifying ISIS or what they stand for, but their political response is that there are foreign armies occupying the Levant, Iraq and Syria, and, and so there is a response to that, and they use that as a tactic in fighting, an absolutely abhorrent yeah. tactic, but it's not really about the Islamic faith, even though they put the Islam, the, the umbrella of Islam over their political ideology. And I know we could easily get going on that, but if we want to talk about that, I'd be happy to talk about it afterwards, uh, but want to keep going with Israel and Palestine. Um, this was just another example to show this was a home that was invaded in the middle of the night when I was in Hebron. Uh, you can see the, um, 
the imprints on the door where they were using their rifles to kind of break the door, break the lock, breaking the glass. You can see a boot print here on the door. And this was a child's room that was turned upside down uh, at one or two in the morning. So it's just to say it's things like that that help radicalize people. Now, getting back to uh, the issue of suicide bombing. So one of the responses that Israel does at the height of suicide bombing, again, second intifada starts, uh, 40 bomb moves up from 12 to 40 bombings in 01, then to 47 in 02. So Israel says we have to do something. So what they start doing is they build a barrier. Okay, how many have ever heard of the West Bank barrier? Most people, yeah. Um, it's called different things, depending on who you are. Uh, it's called the security fence, primarily by Israel. Uh, Palestinians will call it the apartheid or separation wall. The most neutral term would be the barrier, because it's yeah, because it sounds more neutral. But the question would be, how could they both be claiming such seemingly contradictory things? How could it be a fence and a wall, right? It's either a fence or it's a wall. Well, the answer is that it is both. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, so this is, um, again, the border of the West Bank and the border of Israel. And along that, you have places where you see a fence. Again, I took all these pictures, so these aren't taken from anywhere else in the world. These are actually in Israel and Palestine. Uh, so this is a fence in an area called Calculia. Here's another picture of the fence. You can see a lot of the razor wire. Now let me say here that this, when you think of a fence surrounding it, again, this fence is electrified. It's got razor wire. And in fact, the fence that surrounds Riverbend Maximum Security Prison here in town is known as the Israeli fence. It's made from the, it's either made by, I never figured out if it was made by Israel or if they bought it from the same place that Israel gets their fence. Point being, it's electrified in razor wire, and so the fence that surrounds the West Bank is a fence of incarceration, not a fence of, not like a chain link fence that you just have to lift the gate or something. That's not the kind of fence that exists here. It's the same sort of fence that surrounds prisons in the United States. In other places, you actually have a wall. So this is me when I was 18 with crazy hair, uh, and as you can see, the Palestinians wanted to let you know this is not a fence. Um, it's quite a high, quite a high wall. Um, Here's another image of the wall. Three times the height of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if I make that black and white, it looks like images from Europe in the, you know, before my time. Basic facts on the wall. Construction begins in June of 2002. What's happening in 2002? The height of suicide bombing. So it goes up at a time when Israel is particularly concerned about security. And suicide bombings, as we saw from those numbers, go down, which would seem to indicate that this is, in fact, a security measure. They're being attacked with suicide bombings. They have no idea where these people are going to come from, who it's going to be. So they put up a wall to keep the Palestinians out and protect the Israelis. Suicide bombing goes down. Success story. This wall itself is a 25 to 40 foot, uh, it's 25 to 40 feet high, and it's made up of a lot of different things. Concrete slabs, trenches, barbed wire, buffer zones, electrified fencing, watchtowers, thermal imaging, video cameras, sniper towers, patrol roads, the whole thing. Here's an example. This is one of my friends um, that we went over there during college, and you can see how, how tall this wall is. This is in Bethlehem. This is just, um, it's actually inside the city of Bethlehem. Uh, Mm-hmm. 
Yep. I was going to tell that story. I'm glad you did. For those who just... No, I, I, it was better from you. For those who, who might not have been able to hear, she's just saying that she was there with my granddad when the uh, wall construction began, and she was with a Palestinian Christian leader uh, who, who saw the trucks bringing these in and began to cry, saying things will never be the same again, and he was spot on. They are not. Um, so, the question, so we know kind of what it's made of, what it looks like. So the question then is, where is it exactly? Where does this barrier lie? And so here we're going to get into the issue of borders. So um, we're going to try and frame this conversation on current realities through the lens of what's called the five final status issues. That refers to the five major issues that Israeli and Palestinian political leaders say need to be agreed upon in order for there to be a, a political solution, a, a, um, um, a peace agreement. It's what they were talking about in the Oslo Accords that they never got to. Those basic five issues are the issue of borders, where will the Israeli state and a Palestinian state be in a two-state solution? What do we do with the settlements? Who gets control of the water? What happens to all the refugees? Because remember, Palestinians are the second largest refugee population in the world. And what about Jerusalem? I would contend this is the issue that may never, ever, ever get resolved. <laughs> it's one of the most complicated to work out. I would contend this issue is the one that keeps all this from ever getting resolved, though. This is the issue that, that uh, the number one obstacle to peace. <coughs> though I potentially think that Jerusalem is the hardest to negotiate. That being said, we wanted, we're going to look at this. Uh, we've talked about settlements. We're now going to look at the issue of borders. So, um, now let's start by saying, I think we, we likely could all agree, maybe not, but we likely could all agree that a nation state has the right to protect itself from attacks, and the na that nation state very likely has the right to build a wall to protect itself from attacks. Okay? Now, whether or not Christians should build a wall to keep people out is a different conversation that we're not going to get into, but a nation state itself likely has the right to protect it. I mean, there's a presidential candidate who's talking about building a wall to keep out certain people. If we want to say that's an issue of security, then we could argue a nation state has the right to do that. The question becomes, where does that wall go? Where does the wall go the, between the U.S. and Mexico? Where does the wall go between Israel and Palestine? Now, note, keep your eye here on the black line, which is the green line, right? This is the only internationally recognized border between Israel and the West Bank. Now, also keep in mind that Israel has never once officially declared its borders, ever. It's never said where its borders are. But the only internationally recognized border is this black line. Now, this next slide, you're going to see in blue the path of the barrier. Seeing some wide eyes. So I think you're realizing. Note here, I'm going to trace it for you. Here's the black line. If I can hold my hand steady. I don't have surgeon hands. Here's the black line. Whoop, whoop. That's the green line out here. Oh, there's the green line. And 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 look at where the wall, the path of the barrier and the wall goes. Now, as I say, I, I think we could all likely agree that Israel, to protect itself from attacks, we could argue they have the right to build a wall to protect themselves. Question becomes, do they have a right to build that wall deep into the Palestinian territory? Does the U.S., in order to keep out the Mexican immigrants that we're all so afraid of, do we have the right to build a wall? <laughs> Probably. Do we have the right to build that wall into Juarez and down into Mexico City? No! No, we do not! That is confiscating someone else's land. That is called theft. And that is exactly what is happening. Okay. Why would they build this wall and this barrier so deep inside the West Bank? 
especially if what you're arguing is that any Palestinian is a potential terrorist, which is one of the consequences of terrorism, right? You have no idea who it's going to be. Any of them are potential terrorists. If that's the case, why would you bring potentially hundreds of thousands of them onto your side of the wall? Why would you do that? Yeah, we're going to get to the issue of water in just a second. Water's coming up. Very next thing that we're going to talk about. Um, so a couple of other stats for you. Is, so the, the question becomes, is this wall about separation or is it about security? Did they build the wall in order to protect themselves or did they build the wall in order to separate the population and take land? Um, again, goes to the height of suicide bombing. Suicide bombing goes down. We seem to have an argument for, for uh, security. But then the question again becomes, but why not build it on your land then? Why not build it on your property? The total length of this barrier when it's completed will be twice the length of the actual green line. So the barrier itself is going to be twice the length of the actual border between the two, the two nations. 57% of it is completed, 9% of it is under construction, 34% has yet to begun. Note this, 14% of that barrier will actually be on the border and 86% of it will be inside the Palestinian territory. 86% of it. There's a, uh, a Jewish um, historian uh, who you may have heard of called Norman Finkelstein, who I believe it teaches at uh, NYU. Both his, uh, his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And he uses a metaphor. He says um, that if, uh, he, said, uh, he said, I live in New York City. Um, and uh, in New York City, property rights are very strict and it's very expensive. And if I'm having an issue with my neighbor, my neighbor's dog, for instance, just keeps coming in and digging up my garden. And I want to keep that neighbor's dog out then I have the right to build a fence on my property. But to do that, I'm going to have to hire a surveyor, and we're going to have to measure exactly where my property line is. Because legally, if my, prop if my fence deviates one quarter of one inch from, that, uh, from our actual boundary, my neighbor has the legal right to tear down that fence. One quarter of one inch. So he said, if my neighbor's dog is coming into my yard and digging it up, and I want to build a fence, and then I actually build that fence into the neighbor's yard and uh, around their flower bed, and their swimming pool, and their new car, and their garden, you may begin to wonder whether or not I've used the, the excuse of their dog as a pretense for taking what I really wanted, which was their pool, and their car, and their garden. That's the, uh, that's the question that's raised here. Is the issue of security, which seems to be a real issue, but is it being used as a pretense in order to be able to take land 86% of that wall is in the West Bank, be able to take land um, that, they have, that they've wanted. 380, this is significant. Remember, we have a, we're, we're averaging around 600,000 settlers living in the West Bank. 385,000 of them now live on Israel's side of the wall. Go back to that map. What you'll notice here is that all of these blue spots, these are all settlements. Right here, there's a collection, huge collection right here, right here, right here right here. All of the things you see in blue are on Palestinian land. According to international law, they're all illegal. 600,000 settlers live there. 385,000 of them have now been brought onto the Israeli side. The wall went out like a grasping hand and brought them back in onto their side. 28 Palestinian communities will be surrounded on three sides by the wall. Eight communities, 26,000 residents will be surrounded on four sides by the wall, connected to the West Bank by a road or a tunnel. Now, I'm interested, when you think of, uh, like, here in Nashville, uh, any are there any communities, that can, any places that come to mind where a population is controlled by someone else, their movement is restricted, and they're surrounded on all four sides by a wall? A prison. That's correct. Yep. That's a prison. 
eight, eight of them, eight prisons. The cost of this is about $4 billion in total. Uh, if they had actually built it on the green line, they would have saved about $1.7 billion. So it costs about $4 billion total. Who has been the primary funder for this? Palestinians have let you know. All along the wall in Bethlehem, it says made in the USA, I'm sorry, I should tell you. It says made in the USA. All along the wall, this is in Bethlehem, Palestinians have gone through and they've done these graffiti stamps that say made in the USA. This is primarily funded under the Bush administration. I wanted to show you a couple of pictures before we turn to the issue of water, where Dad's going to cover, just to show that the Palestinians are not just... Um, we've all heard the stories of how they're the perpetrators, they're committing the suicide attacks. We're now hearing more stories about them as victims, but I also want to show the ways that Palestinians are empowering themselves uh, and that they refuse to be beaten, they refuse to be um, ashamed, they continue to take... Uh, the oppression that is happening to them, the destruction is happening to them, and they reimagine it. One of the ways they do that is with the wall. So, okay, so Israel's decided that you're going to build a wall through our community. We'll use it to make art. So all throughout the, the wall in the West Bank, especially in Bethlehem, you see all this prophetic art that Palestinians, they've turned it into a canvas. It's quite remarkable. Um, one of the things, so here, I have a dream. This is not part of that dream. <laughs> um, this is my favorite one. Of course, we see it's Lady Liberty, She's holding Handla. Handla is, the, is a cartoon figure um, drawn by a guy, it was Naj Al-Naj, I believe. It anyway, I can't remember his name, but he was a political cartoonist who created this uh, image of this Handla, um, who is a, a refugee child who is constantly looking, uh, longing to go back to the, his mother home, to his motherland. Uh, and it's, this, it's, a, it's a figure that came to symbolize the longing of the Palestinian people to be free, the longing of the Palestinian people to return to, uh, to the land from which they were exiled. Um, and in fact, these became so controversial that the cartoonist himself was assassinated in London. Um, and, uh, but this to me is a remarkable image. It is Lady Liberty who is holding the, the symbol of the Palestinian refugees and weeping because this is not what liberty looks like. This is not what freedom looks like. <clears throat> so... Uh, one of those communities that's surrounded on all four sides by a wall uh, and by the barrier is the city of Calculia, and my dad is going to take over and talk about that. We'll cover as much as we can in the next 10 or 12 minutes and then pick back up um, next week. But while Michael mentioned that the wall has been uh, successful in reducing suicide bombing, I think that's true. Clearly there's been a decrease in suicide bombing. There are many interpretations for that, one of which quite legitimately is that this barrier has made it much more difficult for those who would do harm to Israel to cross into Israel. There's no doubt about that. There's also a changing political reality by which the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, um, no longer supports suicide bombing as a method of resistance. And so that's been one reason for the decrease. Um, the, the reality is that as tight as this barrier is, as oppressive as it is, it's very easy for people to get around. I have many young Palestinian friends who routinely bypass the barrier, they know ways to get through, and find their way into Israel. The consequences are severe if they're caught. There are things that, that will happen if you're caught on the wrong side of the barrier without proper identification. But this is not an impenetrable border. So by itself, it's not an explanation for the decrease in suicide bombing. Because again, those who would kill themselves for the purpose of terrorism are not going to be deterred if it's possible to get peacefully across the border, then it's possible to do so with explosives strapped to your back. So it is a reason why suicide bombing has decreased. It is not the only reason for that, and I think that's important to recognize. Calculia is a city of about 40,000 
Palestinians. In 1945, there were 5,000 residents of the, of the city. The population grew as a result of the refugee crisis. So most of the people who live in Calkilia now are United Nations recognized refugees. The city is here. We're just very close to Netanya, about seven kilometers from the, uh, from the sea, or 12 kilometers, about seven miles from the, from the Mediterranean Sea. And Calkilia was one of the areas where the wall went up originally in 2002. It was built around Calkilia and around Bethlehem. Now the, the wall portion is here on the western side of Calkilia. The rest of it is the fence that Michael showed you. Calkilia is one of those eight communities that is completely surrounded on four sides by the wall. The only entrance and exit into Calkilia is this road <coughs> that is monitored. There's a checkpoint here. So whenever Israel wants to shut off the city of Calkilia, they can just park a Humvee or a tank right here at the, at the, um, the entrance and exit. There are um, access routes that go out of Calkilia through <coughs> tunnels now to connect the people here with their farmland and the villages. So if you look at Calkilia, and you see the green line is here that Michael talked about. The border, the wall, the barrier, the fence goes here around Calkilia, deep into the West Bank, back out here, and again deep into the West Bank. The reason is these large settlement complexes. Some 30, 40,000 Israelis living in these settlements, or colonies as the Palestinians call them. So this Calkilia, city of 40,000 people, has been decimated. Their economy has been destroyed. It used to be a very vibrant community. The best water in all of the West Bank is under Calkilia. And that's the primary reason why the area was walled off and taken by Israel. They've developed ways of drilling where they can drill on the Israeli side and then drill laterally across under to tap into the water resources and pull them back into Israel. But this has been a fight over water. So the city has been walled off. If you want to go from Calkilia to the Tertiary Care Center, which is in Nablus over here, so from the standpoint of medicine, uh, Calkilia has a couple of small hospitals, what we would call local community hospitals. If you need to get to Nablus, to the, to the major medical complex, that should be about a 30-minute trip. It can take anywhere from two hours to two days, depending on what the security status is and whether these checkpoints are all up and operational. So Calkilia is a, a unique location in terms of, of what's happened to the citizens there as a result of the wall. This is the wall in around 2004, 2005. My parents and I were with a friend driving along right here in the lower right-hand corner. You can see the shoulder of a road. This is the major Israeli superhighway toll road now that goes from the <coughs> south up here to the north. So Israelis who are going on vacation on holiday from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee, which would be way up here in the north, usually take Highway 6, the toll road. So in 2004 or 5, we stopped to see Calkilia. Just on the other side of this is the city that I was describing to you. This wall, again, is three times the height of the Berlin Wall. It goes about a third the distance underground that it goes above ground to keep people from tunneling under the wall. Just a few years later, at the same spot, this is how the wall looks. So what happened was they built a dirt embankment up so that the wall looks smaller on the Israeli side than it does on the Palestinian side, and they planted some rapidly growing trees. So now when you drive by, you don't even see it. So you're able, Israelis are able to go from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee for vacation without ever having to confront this ugly reality. Again, it's not too difficult to make a connection with the experience of the Jewish people in Europe at times when the concentration camps were hidden from view, moved outside the experience of the, of the, the German population. Uh, and this is what's happening to protect the Israelis from this reality of what happens when you have an occupying force uh, trying to wall off a people.
So let's talk for a few minutes about water. Um, we have a water engineer uh, who, uh, here, I believe, who, who knows considerably more about this, and we can talk more about water later. But um, the Palestinians do not have access to the majority of the water supply. This little cartoon shows a, a, a Jewish-Israeli settler with, and a Palestinian. Uh, when we look at the water situation, there are two sources of water in historic Palestine, Israel and Palestine. One is the underground aquifers, the mountain aquifers, and the other is the surface water system. There are three sub-aquifers with respect to the, the underground system, and we're not going to go through the details of all this, but as I understand international law as it relates to water, the ownership of water is determined partly by the recharge area, where the water falls, where the rain falls, and where it's stored. And the vast majority of water in historic Palestine, in Israel and Palestine, is legally under the control of the Palestinians because of the recharge area and the storage area. Some of it is stored in what's known as Israel today, but the vast majority of the recharge and storage area is under the West Bank. And that is one of the crucial issues in this, in this struggle. It's about water and land and the access to resources. So you can see these three aquifers demonstrated here. Again, most of the recharge and storage area is in Palestine. The surface water system is represented by the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Uh, it runs about 190 miles from north to south with an average width of about 30 meters. It's used by several different countries, Israel, Jordan, Syria to a certain extent until they lost the Golan Heights in Lebanon. The Palestinians have no <coughs> access to the surface water system. Because if you remember from our previous discussion, Area C, which is all of the Jordan Valley, is under the complete control of the Israeli military. So the Palestinians have no access to uh, to the surface water system. And about 90% of this water system is in danger because of diversion. So again, looking at the surface water system, it feeds into the, the Dead Sea. And I want you to watch this graphic to see what's happened from 1960 to 2007. Did it, it didn't work. Okay, let's try it. Oh, there it was. It, okay, now it's, now it's shrinking. You can see it. So now there are two bodies of water at the Dead Sea and completely separated by a sand bank. And this area is only kept um, hydrated by a, a, a channel that's been built down where the water is evaporated for salt pools. Um, so the whole ecosystem is in a crisis now. And Israel is talking about ways to fix this. One is to run a pipeline from the Red Sea up to dump ocean water into the Dead Sea. Another is to bring a pipeline from the Mediterranean across the Negev to dump water into the Dead Sea. The problem is that's not the ecosystem of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is fed by fresh water from the north and becomes salty as it evaporates. To dump ocean water in changes the whole ecosystem of what's happening in that area. It also is a prime target for terrorism. If you run a major water channel across the southern part of Israel, the Negev, there are all sorts of concerns about security there. So this is happening because the water usage in Israel far exceeds the resources that are available for the water. If you look at per capita water use in the occupied territories in Palestine, it averages around 63 liters per person per day. Now, any conversation about water is complicated. This is probably where we'll have to stop. Because um, when we talk about water usage, we're talking about domestic consumption as well as um, agricultural and industrial <coughs> consumption. And there are lots of dis different statistics out there, lots of different sources. But the, the United Nations says the average water use for Palestinians is around 63 liters per person per day. 7% of communities use less than 30 liters. Only 16% use more than 100 liters per day. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you or me. 
if, if you're like me, when I first started researching, that does, I don't know how much water I use every day. I don't know how much water I'm supposed to use. The World Health Organization says the minimum recommendation is 100 liters per person per day. And only 16% of Palestinians have access to the minimum recommended usage per day. In Gaza, only 7% of the water even meets the World Health Organization standards for sanity and safety. The water in the West Bank is safe. In Gaza, it's not safe. And the predictions are that in the next 15 years, Gaza will be uninhabitable. When you go to Gaza and turn on the tap, the water that comes out is partially salty because they're having to bring salt water in from the sea because the freshwater resources are so depleted. So you've got this walled off prison in Gaza that in the next 10 or 15 years, by the United Nations standards, is going to be uninhabitable. But there's no plan for what to do in Gaza. There is cholera, dysentery, hepatitis, and yellow fever in Gaza because of the water resources. Israelis use three times as much water per person per day as the average Palestinian does. Now I looked it up this morning just to get an idea. According to the United Nations, which, is, which country in the world uses the most water per person per day for domestic consumption? Us, right. And that average is around 570 liters per person per day in the United States. And we're saying only 16% of Palestinians have access to 100 liters per person per day. This is a huge issue. In Greenwood, on a dry summer day like yesterday, we'll approach 2,000 a day per person. Really? Wow. And this is domestic consumption. This doesn't take into consideration uh, agricultural and industrial consumption. This is a settlement in Gaza when I was there in 2005 visiting a colleague of mine, a family physician, Israeli family physician, who practiced for 20 years in a settlement in Gaza. He drove me around the settlement and showed me the flowers that were growing in the sand. And he was so proud, he's an Orthodox Jew, he was so proud of the fact that Israel has fulfilled the biblical prophecies. I grew up hearing this, that when the, when the Jews returned to, to their homeland, they fulfilled the biblical prophecies that flowers would grow in the desert. Well, he said, we learned how to do that. What we learned is, that you can grow anything in the desert if you put enough water to it. <laughs> and so they're uh, funneling water, siphoning it off of the, the West Bank and the, the Jordan River to raise flowers in the desert of Gaza. Um, the settler inequities, settlers use around 280 liters per person per day. Again, living in the same area, the Palestinian area, where there's 16% don't have 100 liters per day, the settlers are using 280 liters per day. We talked about this. 3% of the West Bank is occupied by settlers, but they control about 40% of the West Bank because of the confiscation of the roads. So I think we're going to have to end with this slide. This is the home of my colleague, Sodi Namir, again, family physician in Gaza. When I visited his home in 2005, later that year, Israel forcefully evacuated all the settlements in Gaza in a unilateral withdrawal. But this was his family home. He had seven children, um, had a, a yard grass that actually had to be mowed, he had to have a lawnmower to mow his grass. Again, trying to live in the desert as we live in the United States and Europe. It requires a tremendous amount of water resources in order to irrigate a yard that then has to be mowed in the southern part of Gaza. Sodi and his family were the last um, to be evacuated from, uh, this story is in the Boston Globe, you can go back and find it from 2005. But he notified the Israeli military when they were coming in to clear out the, settle the settlement. He said, we're not going to leave um, uh, w willingly. We're not going to be violent, but we're not going to leave willingly. So we want to let you know. So they moved all of their property out like everyone had to do. And then he and his wife and seven children barricaded themselves inside their home and forced the Israeli military to come in and kick the doors down and go in and pick up each member of the family 
and carry them out to a van to be transported out. And of course, that made the headlines internationally. Israeli soldiers are evacuating Orthodox Jews from their home. It's a huge political story, a, a, a propaganda story. Uh, again, they were here illegally for 20 years in a settlement in the Gaza Strip. And when they were removed, it was portrayed as Jew against Jew. Jewish soldiers forcefully removing Jewish, a Jewish, peaceful Jewish family from their home. That's a part of the drama of this story. And a part of what we hope that we're, we're doing is trying to share the, the narrative on both sides and to see the other reality besides what gets displayed in the newspapers here. We're over our time. We'll pick back up with uh, more information about this next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Hold on. That's great. Can we turn that off?